It's September 11th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Leanne Miyasato from the Entrepreneurs Foundation to tell us about the upcoming panel, Fail Will, what we've learned from our biggest mistakes. Finally, we'll find out what it's like to live under a Martian dome for four months as we catch up with the High Seas Project. But we'd like to have your questions and thoughts as part of the conversation as well. Be ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, just last week, we spoke with two companies that had graduated from the Energy Accelerator, a program of the Pacific International Center for High-Tech Research. Now, the program has gotten a major boost from the Navy. The Office of Naval Research has committed to invest $30 million in the Accelerator for energy startups. That effectively triples the budget the program had over the past three years and affirms the vision of Hawaii as a center of innovation in energy technologies. To date, the Energy Accelerator has helped 17 energy companies bring their technologies to market, helping them raise follow-on funding totaling over $38 million. The program is now preparing to welcome its next class of startups with applications due before September 27th. The Energy Accelerator is looking for startups in the energy space, including companies focused on grid integration of renewable energy, uh, weather via demand response, energy storage, or smart grids. Other areas of interest include transportation, bioenergy, and energy efficiency. The program is open to startups based in Hawaii as well as on the mainland with the hope that the technologies can be successfully demonstrated in Hawaii, but then find markets throughout the Pacific, uh, Asia-Pacific. Don Lippert, senior manager of the Energy Accelerator program, said in a statement, Hawaii has the best economic conditions for launching a clean energy company on the planet. Uh, We prepared the most aggressive clean energy goals in the country because our government is very serious about getting off imported oil. And, you know, it was pretty exciting to have her on talking about the, you know, the first cohort and the second cohort and and their uh, plans for supporting, you know, the energy startups. Of course, she had this Release it was in, embargo, embargo yes. right? So we couldn't really announce it. But it's uh, glad it's good to see that it actually happened. And again, triple their previous budget mm-hmm. is nothing to sneeze at. Already, the program gives uh, up to a hundred thousand dollars to seed stage startups when they have a prototype, or as much as a million dollars if they're in the growth stage and they can come up with fifty-fifty matching funds. So, uh, if this you know with this kind of uh, financial backing and with more cohorts planned, you can see a whole network of energy startups really starting to support each other here in Hawaii. And the idea that the, you know this is non-dilutive funding right. so it doesn't take equity out of the company mm-hmm. and uh, you know this is a great way of uh, getting kind of a boost and a kickstart, and it's it's substantial money. Yeah, and they, uh, they're so again they're looking for new uh, applicants. Although they mentioned they get hundreds of applicants, except maybe five percent. But if you're interested, you can go to HawaiiRenewable.com. Tiger sharks can be found in Hawaiian waters all along the island chain and throughout the year. But a new study due out from researchers at the University of Hawaii at Manoa found that many migrate from the northwestern Hawaiian islands to the populated main Hawaiian islands in the fall. In fact, a quarter of the adult female tiger sharks that spend time among the remote coral atolls swim as far as 1,500 miles to reach the main islands in September. That coincides with their birth season as well as observed increases in the number of shark attacks on humans. Working with colleagues at the University of Florida, the researchers tracked the movements of over 100 tiger sharks for seven years. They found that while many sharks migrate during the pupping season, most do not. Arthur Carl Meyer uh, with the UH Institute for Marine Biology said in a statement, both the timing of this migration and tiger shark pupping season coincide with the Hawaiian oral tradition suggesting that late summer and fall, 
when the willy-willy tree blooms are the period of increased risk of shark bites. In addition, their tracking revealed that these sharks do show a preference for specific islands, but they do not remain resident in specific harbors and bays, countering the widespread belief that they are strongly territorial. Nonetheless, the research team is quick to point out that the data collected in this study is limited and that data on shark attacks is even more sparse given how rare they actually are. They say there are many factors that may affect shark behavior or increase the number of encounters with humans. Well, you know, they said that the the study is limited uh, because the data that they collected was based on sensors on the sharks but was detected off of buoys that were placed out there. So they can only tell when the shark is passing that buoy. And we had reported when we talked about uh, tiger sharks as well as, uh, you know, there are some projects going on where there's cameras and sensors being put on on, uh, uh, sea mammals. And they're looking at putting these on tiger sharks so that they can get a better idea. I mean, we had talked to about the the monk seal. Yeah, constant transmitting of their location rather than only when they pass by because there's a big piece of the picture missing. Mm -hmm. And they're saying that if any of these sharks left the Hawaiian waters and went far, far away, that wouldn't be reflected because the only place they can detect them is when they're nearby. But still, it was interesting to hear. They talk about how sharks clearly have a choice as to whether they're going to migrate or not, and specifically that you know, they're, they're, uh, the, the time to give birth is every three years. So at most, they would expect a third of them to be making that journey. Uh, so they want to see what the factors are that bring them here. But they were very careful to say that it's not necessarily mm-hmm. why we're hearing more shark attacks right now. Well, moving from the seas to the skies, both greenhouse, and, greenhouse gas emissions and air pollutions are known factors behind man-made climate change. But a new study finds that while they're very different, their effects on regional rainfall levels are surprisingly similar. Researchers at the UH International Pacific Research Center teamed up with scientists at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography to examine greenhouse gases and aerosols through three state-of-the-art climate models. Greenhouse gases tend to warm the atmosphere, while aerosols like smog and smoke often have a cooling effect, and they are distributed across the globe in very different ways. Greenhouse gases are evenly distributed and well-mixed in the atmosphere. Aerosols, meanwhile, are found in varying concentrations in specific regions, primarily near emission sources like industrial centers in Asia and North America. Yet, the team found that both had similar effects on the amount of rainfall over the open ocean. Uh, lead author Shang Ping Chi said in a statement, this came as a big surprise to us. It took a while for the results to sink in. The results mean that it is harder to tell apart the greenhouse and aerosol effects. The team notes that while short-term interactions with clouds are thoroughly researched, long-term effects need further study. But their ra- rainfall findings will allow scientists to develop more reliable regional climate projections. Now, the idea of aerosols you know, being in the air... If it has a cooling effect, uh, I guess intuitively you would think that it also might have some effect if the sun is shining on the aerosols and it's, you know, sort of reflecting and heating the air around it. So there might be a a counter warming effect that results from aerosols as well. Well, they specifically talk about how aerosols impact the physics and the behavior of clouds, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's only in a matter of minutes and days, very short term. What they were really kind of curious about is what the long-term effects of aerosols are. Um, But yeah, that they they essentially have um, perhaps opposing effects on the overall climate, but yet they both kind of reflect in a very similar way in the amount of rainfall, I think is very interesting because we always focus on certain kinds of emissions, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions or smoke and smog. Uh, If they're indistinguishable in the record, that makes kind of coming up with policy, for example, much more complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
The Hawaii Health Connector, scheduled to launch next month, announced partnerships with 34 community organizations last week, which will receive a total of $6.7 million in grant funding to help with education and outreach efforts. The Hawaii Health Connector is an online marketplace where the public can research and compare health insurance plans. The system was previewed at a Kauai Chamber of Commerce event in August and presented to lawmakers at the state capitol on Friday. To date, only Hawaii's largest health insurance providers are participating in the program, Hawaii Medical Service Association and Kaiser Permanente Hawaii. But the biggest challenge the Health Connector faces is public awareness. While a broad marketing campaign has been launched, the Health Connector will also provide $6.5 million in grant funding to 34 groups to help educate the public. These market assisters include community health centers on all major islands and agencies like the Institute for Human Services and the Legal Aid Society of Hawaii. Coral Andrews, executive director of the Health Connector, said in a statement, People understand that these organizations have close connections to their communities. For many of us, healthcare can be confusing and difficult to understand, and these partners will help to simplify the process and strengthen their communities. In related news, the Hawaii Health Information Exchange last week announced that several hospitals have agreed to share medical records through its system. Castle Medical Center and Hawaii Pacific Health will be on board when that exchange system goes live in November. Yep, exciting times uh, for you health, know, health choices. Yeah. yeah, and you know the idea is that now the insurance is going to be basically available to individuals, marketed to individuals. Now, before most of the insurance providers were going through the companies, the corporations, right, right. and with the prepaid um, healthcare act in Hawaii, that was the vehicle by which you would get healthcare distributed to to employees. And of course, employees, you know, they get what they get. They, you know, they're happy with it. Now, if you have to go out and choose your own, you know, which some some um, employers will choose to to, to do, guess, deliver, right? right uh, you're going to have to make your own choices. Well, it all comes down to the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. supposedly taking effect in January, but uh, effectively. And now I'm starting to see these TV ads saying mm-hmm. basically, if you are an individual who doesn't have health insurance, if you don't sign up as an individual, that you will actually face tax implications for not having insurance. So it is definitely very complicated, but it was it was interesting to see headlines both about the health connector um, and about the health information exchange. You can basically see the impact of technology throughout the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. Finally, in tech news beyond our shores, Apple yesterday staged its traditional fall product launch, announcing the latest update to its iPhone, the iPhone 5S, and a new, lower-cost model dubbed the iPhone 5C. As with the previous 3S updates, the 5S looks nearly the same as the 5 with a much faster processor and an improved camera. The biggest addition this time around is a fingerprint sensor built into the home button, allowing users to use their fingerprint to unlock their phones or authorize purchases. The new 5C, meanwhile, comes in five colors expressed via a polycarbonate back case rather than the anodized aluminum. While its leading-edge counterpart carries the usual $199 price tag, the 5C will start at $99. Both phones will be available beginning Friday, September 20th, with online pre-orders available for only the iPhone 5C this Friday. Apple also announced that the latest version of its mobile operating system, iOS 7, will be released next week, Wednesday, Jan- uh, September 18th. Now, you've already got uh, iOS 7 running on your iPhone. Yes. So on the 18th, is it going to be, it's going to be the production right. version, right? So right now the it's kind of a, a late, uh, like, a, like a beta version. Uh, and then are you planning to stand in line for the uh, iPhone? 
iPhone 5S? I really, really would like to, although I was recently informed th- th- that there may be a conflicting event that you and I might have to attend that Friday. Yeah, you better not give me your picture to, you know, carry as a proxy. Around. But um, I definitely like iPhones. I think you and I are, are, are we are iPhone users, mm-hmm. but we should stress that we're actually kind of, we, we swing both kind of ways. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. we, we also love our Android devices and experimenting with them. I think that... Uh, the fingerprint sensor is the primary, you know, innovation you're going to mm-hmm, look at. Mm-hmm. We all are kind of curious how well it's going to actually work. We lo- we know that when Siri came out, it had its growing pains. Apple Maps had their growing pains. So this fingerprint reader might be something that they need time to get right. But if they get it right, it can transform a lot of things in addition to just letting you get into your phone or letting you buy a, a, buy a song. Now, in this new age of uh, concern about privacy and security, what Apple was very uh, key to announce was the fact that they aren't storing the uh, the fingerprints in the cloud. This right. is all being stored on your phone itself. Right. So, you know, it's not being transmitted anywhere. But it's uh, I think it's it's definitely a fascinating technology. Mm-hmm. I certainly want to try it out. And, of course, the new processor is now 64-bit instead of 32-bit. So these are now desktop class processing power available in smartphones. But there's the competition is great. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting this year versus any past year is that uh, the iPhone isn't automatically the perfect choice for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of great options. And uh, I definitely think that it's the iPhone 6 when they need to change the design. Um, that better be something really, really big or by that point. I think that there's possibility that even I might be looking at an Android phone. Well, I, I just bought a Nexus 4, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty enamored with it. I mean, I think it's kind of a cool thing to have the pure Google experience. Right, right. Uh, but then again, you know, I like I like to see what's on both sides of the fence. So. I thought it was interesting that you can only pre-order the 5C. You have to go to the store to get the fancy new one that's also available in gold. Yeah, by the way. gold. I think that's how they're going to... That's basically to sustain the lines. I mean, kind of a visual that Apple loves to have yeah. out on front pages every day. Uh, plenty of pockets like me like the gold one. <laughs> <laughs> that could be it too. Yeah. Well, now joining us here in the studio is Leanne Miyasato from the Entrepreneurial's Foundation to tell us about the upcoming panel called Fail Well. Welcome to the show, Leanne. Thank you very much, Bert and Ryan. Now, who came up with this uh, name Fail Well and what is, uh, what is this panel all about? Well, as you could probably guess, Peter Kay, who is going to be the moderator of this panel, is on our board, and he uh, coined that phrase, fail well. Um, But the other members of the board are also very enthusiastic about it um, because um, I think they realize that in Hawaii especially, uh, there's a fear of failure, you know, and we don't want entrepreneurs to be held back by that. We want them to see that failure is okay. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of what you do after you go through the failure that um, you can really learn from. Uh, so that was the genesis of it, and um, we're holding the event uh, next Monday, 6 p.m. at the Waikiki Yacht Club. Now, who, il- who is on the uh, panel that's going to tell us about their Successful their big, failures. <laughs> big failures. That's right. Big failures turn into big successes. Well, we have our, our chairman, Entrepreneurs Foundation of Hawaii, Chairman Tim Dick. Mm-hmm. He's probably mm-hmm. best known in Hawaii as the founder of the Hawaii Super Ferry. Uh, we all know what happened to Super Ferry. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim is also a venture capitalist. He's a uh, general partner at Startup Capital Ventures in Palo Alto, but although he spends a lot of time scouting Hawaii companies as well, has invested in a number of Hawaii companies. So he'll be talking about his perspective as an investor as well, looking at companies that have done well and those that haven't done so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Steve Su, who's the founder of Biz Gym. Biz Gym and Lemonade Alley. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. right. And Lehut.com. He's a serial entrepreneur. But interestingly enough, he started as a real estate developer. Um, 
And then he got into casino development. So he's got some interesting stories to tell about how he grew his company in the the Bay Area uh, to be the sixth fastest growing company. And then it all crashed. So he's going to tell us about that and how he recovered, went mm-hmm. to Las Vegas and, um, you know, became a mega success. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the final panelist is Carnet Williams, the founder of Sprout, formerly known as Chip In, right, right. Um, acquired by a big Indian company uh, last year. And uh, he's also a serial entrepreneur. He's been involved with both nonprofits and for-profits. So he's got a lot of interesting perspectives to share as well. Oh, that'll be very entertaining because, uh, you know, uh, whenever people talk about some of the things that they, they've had a hard time with, the struggles, I mean, it's always kind of, it, it, it's it's more fun to hear about those than, you know, the great successes, but how they break out of that mode of realizing that, you know, it's sort of a, a downer to fail, but then how do they build themselves back up? And, That's you right. know, like guys like Steve Sue, I mean, they're very motivational, just getting a chance to talk to them. Yes, exactly. And they often say that they learn more from their failure than from their success. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm sure they're going to have a lot of interesting stories to share. Now, a fail will is what you saw when Twitter was getting so much traffic that uh, it went down. And all they would show is a picture of a whale. And that kind of (laughs) gave you the fail whale because there was too much interest, too much interest. So one thing I want to ask you about this upcoming uh, fail whale panel is uh, if you aren't able to make the event, is there a plan to stream it or record it and post it elsewhere? Well, we don't have that plan right now, but... um we will think about posting some – I'm sure there's going to be people tweeting about it at the event, but we'll think about posting something afterwards also, a kind of a summary of what was said. Are they being given a format, like maybe you know each one has five minutes or, or you know I guess maybe Peter is going to just kind of go through the panel, have them each talk about their successes or failures. I mean it would be kind of interesting to have them on a Ignite talk or something and in five minutes tell us about their, you know, their failures. Yes, that's kind of how we're going to set it up is each person will have a, about five minutes to talk about what their biggest mistake was and what they learned from it. Mm-hmm. And then Peter will go into a roundtable discussion oh, and try to involve the audience as well. I mm-hmm. do agree that you know, kind of learning from the mistakes is hearing those stories is more instructive in a way mm-hmm. and also tends to humanize people because when you look at a successful person, you just think, oh, they were just lucky and yeah, blessed. Yeah, they were born with a right. you know, silver spoon. Right. right. So this will definitely be an interesting event. So remind us once again uh, where and when and is there a place to sign up? Yes, Monday, September 16th, 6 p.m. at the Waikiki Yacht Club and you can go to our website, efhawaii.org or failwell.eventbrite.com to register. Nice. Sounds good. Thanks, Leanne, for joining us. You're welcome. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Kim Binstead, Brian Shiro, and Angelo Vermeulen to talk about the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. It's a full house, but not anywhere near as cozy as it was in their Martian base. And we want to hear what those experiences were like. If you've got a question, you can give us a call as well and talk to them at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter, so you can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Congress may have the constitutional power to declare war, but it's incapable. That's the contention of Matsunaga Institute for Peace Associate Professor Brian Hallett. His series of papers challenges the belief of only three primary functions of government, and he says the basis for his conclusion is a congressional incapacity to declare war. We'll talk to him Thursday at 5 on Town Square. 
whenever I'm traveling on other islands, I immediately set all my buttons on the rental car to whatever HPR transmitters are available. Probably drives the, the, the car lot attendants crazy, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, I've always done that for many, many years. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Kim Binstead, Brian Shiro, and by phone, Angelo Vermeulen. Uh, Kim is the co-investigator at the UH NASA Astrobiology Institute and co-investigator on the High Seas Project. Brian was part of the mission support team providing support services to the crew. Angelo, meanwhile, is a biologist, space researcher, filmmaker, visual artist, community organizer, author, and crew commander of the Mars Desert Research Station. So uh, they are our guests this week. That's right. And uh, let's see, what was some of the most eye Popping revelations from this project. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And of course, that number to call is 941 3689 on Oahu or 1 941 3689 from the neighbor islands. Kim, Brian, Angelo, we want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Great to be here. Thank you. Hi. Uh, now we will start with uh, Kim. Kim, you know, you've come on to our show a number of times and talked about uh, high seas and you know, it's it's it was a very uh, sort of exciting thing to to be able to to be a part of, and I wanted to give the, the our listeners a little um, quick overview of what the High Seas Project was all about. Right. Well, High Seas stands for uh, the uh, Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, mm-hmm. and the idea is it's an opportunity to. Uh, pretend that you are uh, exploring Mars. And this allows us to test out all sorts of ideas and um, technologies and approaches to that will actually make the exploration of Mars possible. Mm-hmm. And when you start to look at the, what some of the big projects you wanted to focus on, what were the high-priority things that you wanted to accomplish in this first phase of, of high seas? Well, what's exciting about uh, high seas here in Hawaii is it gives us an opportunity to do long-duration simulations. The first one we did, high seas one, was four months long. Mm-hmm. So we're really interested in the questions that take that amount of time to answer. Mm-hmm. So the focus of the first mission was on food. Okay. And you really only start to see problems with the food over the longer term. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I can eat, uh, you know, uh, Oatmeal. macaroni cheese. Yeah, whatever, for... I don't know, a few days, a week, and it's only in the longer term that you start to see the real negative nutritional effects and and psychological effects. Right. So mm-hmm, food was mm-hmm. a really good one. Okay, for- good, good. Brian, uh, as a mission support, uh, I guess a crew person. I mean, what did the what was your sort of main contribution to the the whole high seas project? Well, as you know, with NASA missions, they have mission control, and its job is to essentially schedule and and. Uh, plan out everything the crew does. But as you get farther away from Earth, you have communication delays. And when you get to Mars, you'll have, on average, 20-minute delay each way. That makes having uh, one-way control from Earth rather difficult. And so one of the other uh, main uh, focuses of the High Seas Project was, what is crew autonomy going to be like on a mission like this? Mm -hmm. To what degree can the crew make their own decisions? To what degree to this communication back to Earth need to to happen? What's the frequency of that? And and how would that dynamic be on a real Mars mission? So that was one of the things we were exploring with a group of volunteers from all over the world. Mm-hmm. 
Now, this mission was uh, very immersive, I guess you would say, <laughs> um, kind of reminiscent of some other kind of like biodome experience experiments from decades ago. Um, unfortunately, Brian, I guess you weren't able to necessarily be resident with it. You were outside providing that support. But Angelo, uh, you were there and you were basically cooped up in a simulated Martian base for four months. Um, and I know that certainly food was part of the experiment, experiment, but what was your focus? What was your primary research aim being involved and being cooped up in high seas? Um, I had a few things that I was uh, investigating. Um, I have a background as a biologist, so I had a project on remote farming, basically space, uh, space farming. I was collaborating with um, Simon Angler, who is our uh, crew engineer, and we investigated uh, how feasible it is to start growing food using robotics. Now, the thing is, we didn't have that farm, that setup near the habitat. It was basically on a different location on the big island, and it was an experiment in uh, remote operation of robotics. So mm -hmm. the idea was that a robot arm would be used to tend to the plants and to grow, to grow plants. So we've been working on that. Uh, and then secondly, I also did social research. Um, I was the crew commander, and I took it up as uh, one of my goals to keep crew cohesion as maximized as I could. Mm. And uh, therefore, I did some, uh, I investigated different aspects uh, on a social level. Now, Angelo, you, um, you know, I saw some of your uh, video and the project that you talked about uh, on TED called, uh, I, I think it was Biomod. And, and part of that was um, an interesting element of your involvement as a biologist, as well as an artist, and as well as a sort of a community builder. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on how the team was uh, managed and, and what were some of the skill sets that people brought to the table and, and how did you as a crew commander really manage this team? Well, uh, the, the first thing I have to say is that uh, my role as a crew commander was definitely not, not like you would expect from, uh, a, for example, a military setting where the commander is ordering people around. Uh, that that wouldn't work in a context like this, and it wouldn't work in, in, in it doesn't work in a space context any, anyhow. Uh, the thing is that astronauts, for example, are all highly accomplished people, just like our crew, and basically everybody pretty much knows what needs to be done. So my commander style was much more a style of facilitating and uh, making sure that everybody could maximize our potential, that they could really focus on what they needed to do, and if I could help out to, to improve uh, the space they needed to do what they, that they planned to do, I would help out with that. So um, basically, I did, I, we did come up with a few rules. Uh, Brian already indicated that we had quite some autonomy, and this proved to be crucial. This was really a, an interesting uh, discovery for me as well in my social research, uh, that autonomy is the, the huge motivating impact of autonomy. So basically, we were allowed to develop our own research, but we were also allowed to develop our own schedule. And that's something we did together. And uh, one of the things that we did was every morning, we would have a short crew meeting in which we would share uh, the plans for the day. And this we repeated every single day. Uh, except for Sunday, then we took a day off. Mm. But doing that really created an atmosphere of sharing. We were constantly aware of each other's work, and this is very beneficial uh, to, to bind, uh, to keep the team uh, together. Uh, another thing that I always asked was that people would spend at least part of the day 
working together in the common space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, had, we had individual rooms, and it is very tempting to withdraw in your individual room because there you can really focus and you're on your own. Right, right. But the big disadvantage is that if everybody starts doing that, your, your group starts to fall apart. So these were little things that I was constantly uh, guarding. We're talking to Kim Binstead, Brian Shiro, and by phone, Angela Vermeulen about the High Seas Project, the simulated Mars mission, and how they learned to live together for four months. And that's not the last of the missions, of course. They will get longer. If you've got a question about their experience, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, I like how Angela talks about crew cohesion and trying to make living their tolerable. I was reading the blogs. It was fun following this project. And you had one uh, crew member who was writing all of the reports as different forms of poetry, like really expressing creativity in that environment. But uh, before we get too far, and definitely before we start talking about some of the awesome food, uh, Kim, can you kind of describe for me this physical environment? It is, you know, bigger than a refrigerator, smaller than a, <laughs> uh, smaller than a giant condo. But what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's a it's a geodesic dome. Um, it's on a, a disused quarry at about eight thousand feet on the in the saddle area of Mauna Loa, and uh, it inside the habitat, it's got about a thousand square feet of floor space, mm. which seems like a lot, but when you've got six people and a and four months <laughs> right. worth of food to store, it doesn't uh, it doesn't add up to all that much. So the crew have these very small sleeping quarters, basically the size of a bed with a little tiny desk next to it. And then the rest of the space is fairly open plan. Um, with a big open work area, a, a kitchen, um, laboratory, and uh, two bathrooms. Now, I understand that uh, Hank Rogers had a role to play in the actual financing of this of this dome. What went into the architecting of you know this this sort of uh, uh, habitat and because, your spacesuits too? Yeah, and mm. you know because I mean I don't know if there's it's regular readily available that you know <laughs> if you want to go build a simulated Martian dome, you know here's the architectural plans. I mean how did how did uh, that take place and and what was the the sort of the overall I don't I don't need to know the exact amount but what was it, what did it cost to to actually build this dome? Well, okay, a key thing here is that the dome needed to be self-contained, mm-hmm. very low impact, and uh, removable. So it's a temporary structure. It's it's a bit cl- closer to a tent, really, than to a building. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very important because, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is uh, state land. We didn't, you know, we need to be able to move it away very easily. And it also needed to be very envi- environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. So that was something that uh, Hank was very interested in, obviously, because of his uh, involvement with the Blue Planet Foundation. Um, so, uh, yeah, those were the key constraints on the architecture as such. Um, the, the budget was, is weird and complicated, <laughs> but, um, essentially I, th- I think it cost about 250,000, wow. wow. um, which is a lot in some ways, but, uh, for a space habitat, it's, it's not bad. And I presume you didn't go to NASA surplus and bought spacesuits. So what were you wearing when you were doing the simulated space walks? We had several versions of the spacesuits. The key with the spacesuit is that it needs to simulate the bulk and the awkwardness mm-hmm. of a spacesuit. They weren't real self-contained life support systems. So the two styles we used, one was we had um, hazmat suits. And these were government surplus hazmat suits that uh, Jessica Cruzan on the on the Big Island in Hilo um, modified right, into right. being these mock-up spacesuits. And we also had some um, spacesuits from... Uh, a university on the mainland uh, that does this kind of research, and they they looked a bit more spacey. They looked more like the Apollo.
Apollo suits. And mm-hmm. uh, again, we're very, uh, but we're, we're mock-up suits, not real uh, life support systems. So, so uh, Angelo, did um, I saw a picture of you out there on the simulated Martian planet uh, picking on some rocks, and you had a helmet on. I mean, where did that helmet come from? Where the helmets came from? Well, a helmet is usually part of the spacesuit, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So where, where? Uh, You're not wearing you know, a fishbowl, I think, is what he's <laughs> asking. <laughs> um, this, so this, this was what uh, Tim was just talking about. So the University of Maryland provided us with uh, two prototypes of spacesuit simulators. Ah. So they're, they're, they're obviously not real spacesuiters called spacesuit simulators, and they're doing exactly like what Tim said. It's first of all, they give you an idea of or to give you a feeling of restricted movement, but also, very important, they isolate you from the environment. And those two things are key uh, to simulate an EVA or an extravehicular activity, uh, mm-hmm. like a, a mission outside the dome. We did um, about once a week, a part of the crew would go outside, and the other parts of the crew would stay inside in radio contact. And uh, once they were returned, they would, write, they would write a full report on the, the things that they investigated, mostly geology. Now, uh, Brian, I know that Angela was in there and living among his peers and uh, cooped up as such and trying to keep the team together. But you, as uh, support, were sort of on the outside looking in and watching all of these interactions. Now, pretending that Angelo isn't listening, um, <laughs> I'm really kind of curious because of any other experiment when you have people in a confined space for a long period of time, either you have some con- you will have some conflict or you even have a reality TV show. So, I mean, what were some of the interesting things that you, that you observed or that the crew reported that you thought were instructive for future long-term confined space missions? Yeah, so one of the things that one observes in any uh, isolating environment like this, or it could be polar exploration, it could be submarines, you you name it, if it's a remote expedition, there's always this crew ground disconnect where the the remote group gets this feeling of it's us versus them, the people back in the real world, back at home. And uh, we saw a bit of that going on with high seas as well, where you know the, the crew has their own uh, perspective, um, and they, you know, for example, want want um, a certain item that they don't have in their inventory, and and uh, what are we going to do about that? And and, wow. and from the ground, that you know, sometimes the priorities can seem different. And so, one of the that was part of this mission, though, was to explore that. So, we want those things to happen, and we want to work through them and to see. On a real Mars mission, when these sorts of uh, questions come up, how do you deal with them? Mm-hmm. Now, Brian, I'm curious from a support standpoint, uh, to what degree was the crew sort of monitored? I mean, and, and was that part of the, the capability? Were you able to monitor them in terms of their uh, life readings or, or were you able to monitor them? Like like Ryan was mentioning, you know, this is like a, a reality TV show. Like, put cameras up and then watch what these guys are doing throughout the day. What kind of monitoring were you able to do? It certainly would have made a great reality TV show, and, <laughs> and that's not you're not the first person to say that. But uh, there actually were not any any webcams like that that we could watch all the time, and that was partly for crew privacy concerns and, and in terms of monitoring their uh, biomedical signs. Uh, they actually were recording that stuff all the time. They were recording heart rate and, and various other biomedical uh, data for, mm-hmm. for the uh, research that was going on. But because this research goes through an IRB process, it has to be uh, done rigorously. That that information was not streamed right. in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was made anonymous and et cetera. So we didn't have access to that kind of stuff the same way that Mission Control and NASA does today with, with the astronauts on the space station. And we, we think this 
may be a change with Mars. There may be more of this um, comfort level with with a little bit of uncertainty between mm. the ground and the crew. Hmm. As we, um, Brian mentioned, the crew ground disconnect, um, for the next three missions that we're doing um, uh, with high seas, we're going to be looking much more at that. That's going to be more central to the research. So there will be more monitoring of the crew in real time as we go forward. But the focus of the first mission really was the food study, and we didn't, we didn't need to spy on them too much for that. Well, mm-hmm. I, I do want to talk about the food study. I mean, we've, we covered on the show the recipe contest and some of the things that people proposed. And I can certainly see what you're saying, that if you had to eat the same thing every day, I mean, I was excited when my office turned out to be next to Costco, and I thought I was going to eat a hot dog every day. (laughs) I didn't make it through a week. So that's certainly a problem. But you're also looking at things like the smell of the food and how it affects mood. And really, I think most importantly, how preparing the food rather than just opening a TV dinner adds to crew cohesion. So can you talk a little bit to that? I mean, uh, what you know, insights into human activity and and satisfaction you were gaining through that research? Yeah, so we were comparing two food systems. Essentially, the food system that NASA uses now, which is these pre-prepared individual dishes, uh, with something a bit closer to cooking, where you're starting with shelf-stable ingredients and combining them together to make food, typically served family style with everyone sitting down at the table. And there's obvious social trade-offs there. You know, if you're sitting together, you're talking to each other, you're cooking together, all of these things really add into crew cohesion. It also gives you an opportunity to prepare special event meals, birthday cake, uh, uh, halfway through the mission celebration casserole or something like that. So those are all very important. But you also have to remember this was an engineering study. So we were looking at um, how the two systems compared in terms of uh, packaging. There's obviously much less packaging when you have shelf-stable ingredients. Energy usage, water usage, time. It takes more time to prepare things if you're doing the cooking. Um, so all of these factors, all of these trade-offs uh, we're, are going to go back to NASA and help them make decisions about how crews are going to eat on these long-duration missions. Now, you know, I um, was uh, – in fact, a couple of weeks ago, we had an astronaut on the show and he had uh, sort of reflected on some of the food that he had prepared on the International Space Station. Hint, he didn't think that highly of some of those dishes. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Now, I, I, I want to hear a little bit from Angelo. What, what, what's the difference between, let's say, cooking on the International Space Station versus cooking on Mars? Oh, well, first of all, the lack of gravity in the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really the crucial difference. Well, the reason that cooking hasn't been explored much in space exploration up to this time is, first of all, because of the lack of gravity. Uh, we haven't been living for a long time on the moon. We haven't been to Mars. Um, and, but secondly, also because it takes time, and time is still, it's still very precious in, uh, in, in space exploration. Now, the thing is, what we discovered, what we all the conclusion that basically we, we came up with is that uh, probably a balance of the two systems is, is going to be uh, is going to be the future. So you do have days where you just want to use a ready meal because you don't have much time and you're, you're really working hard. And on other days, it's just uh, it's just much better to prepare your own food because there is apart from the uh, countering menu fatigue, which is the, the official name of the phenomenon that you have when people eat the same food for a long time. Um, there is indeed the crew cohesion that increases, but it's also a way of being creative. And definitely as an artist, I noticed that during the mission, having uh, outlets for your creativity is, it has, it gives you an enormous psychological boost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, we want to uh, get into the recipes because I know there's some, you know, pictures on the on the website that are making me hungry right now. My but stomach's we'll, growling. That's right. We want to, but we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back at this short break to continue our conversation with Kim Binstead, Brian Shiro, and Angelo Vermeulen about their four month simulated mission to Mars. What were some of the favorite dishes, and what things might not ever be on the menu again? We'd of course <laughs> love to hear your questions as well. Nine four one three six eight nine, or from the neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. This is. Bite Marks Cafe. When you think of medical school, you think of long hours, textbooks, exams, but there's also the very human side. We went back to our cadavers on Friday afternoon and held their hearts in our hands, which is a really surreal experience. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Multi-Hoku Award winner Kwana Torres Kahele takes you on a musical journey of his life, loves, and travels on Saturday, September 14th in the Atherton. This innovative singer-songwriter performs from his new release, Kahele, to close HPR's season of summer concerts at September 14th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org or 955-8821 during business hours. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Kim Binstead, Brian Shiro, and Angelo Vermeulen about the challenges of a four-month Martian mission. Now, of course, uh, we're talking about Mars, but would this have been similar if it was the moon? Well, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, the topic that we've been all waiting to talk about is the food and the actual menus. And there was a contest that was run, and people submitted their recipes. Kim, give us a little idea as to what kinds of recipes were being provided, and and how did you guys go about selecting which ones were the best? Wow, we got all sorts of responses from uh, all around the world, a really exciting array of of recipes. And before the mission, we... uh, Downselected based on the pictures and based on what they sounded like and, and how and whether they stuck to the rules of using shelf-stable ingredients um, to, I believe it was five in each category, um, you know, a, a small dish, a main dish, soups, stews, that kind of thing. Um, and then the crew on the mission cooked each of the dishes, the, each of the finalist dishes, and, and tasted them and decided if they liked them or not. Mm-hmm. So actually, mm-hmm. if it was submitted, it was tested. Is that true? That sounds No, like, no. If it, it was submitted, like a, right. if it was submitted and made it, if it was a finalist. Ah, it, got, it got tested. Gotcha. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, this whole idea of uh, shelf stable, that means, in fact, I saw one of the pictures and it looks like, uh, you know, my home after I go to a Costco run. <laughs> it, it, there's all these laid out boxes of all the different stuff. And the, the key with that is that it has to be shelf stable. It has to be able to last for a month, right? So mm-hmm. um, I, I think, Angela, you were mentioning in one of your blogs that you had a, another sort of hydroponic system growing somewhere, but you really didn't tap any of that because it wasn't considered shelf-stable. Is that correct? Um, I'm not so sure which, which block you're referring to. But, um, <laughs> the thing is, in the, during the mission, we were not really allowed to grow uh, vegetables or uh, fruits or anything mm-hmm. because that would confound the food study. But we were allowed to grow sprouts, and that was one of the things that I experimented with during okay. several weeks. 
And this was actually uh, welcomed very much by the crew. I, I, we, I served sprouts after three months. It was basically our first fresh food in three months, and everybody was obviously very, uh, very mm. happy with that. So, Angelo, as someone who was subjected or, you know, had the opportunity to experience this wide variety of, of uh, menu items using a very limited set of ingredients, um, what was your favorite? And I'm also curious about what was your least favorite? My favorite? Um, my favorite, the favorite food for me personally, that we that we created, there's a whole bunch of that. I would actually have to go to look through all the the menu, mm. the menus that we wrote down every day. But there's a few that that stick, that come to mind. For example, uh, salmon patties. That was one of the recipes that was submitted, and uh, that was absolutely delicious. It was really yeah. good. But also, we had a bit of a fusion kitchen because we had so many cultural backgrounds in the crew. Different things came together, and so we had Russian borscht, which is like a Russian beet soup. We had seafood chowder, uh, we had bean soup mix, we had Moroccan tagine. All these things were actually really, uh, really good. So we had, we had pretty good food. Now, talking about the pantry that we had, we actually had more ingredients than would actually be used during a mission on Mars. And that was actually the goal of the study. We were provided with a quite, not, quite a, a nice variety of ingredients. And then based on the results, this pantry will now be reduced and then decisions right. will be made on what to take and what can be used to cook without, uh, you know, having too much weight in your spaceship. Now, Brian, you didn't get to be enjoying these prepared meals, but did you, out of curiosity, try any of these yourself? Well, some of the meals, like the salmon patty he mentioned, I actually eat at home quite regularly. And, and <laughs> I think it is really good and excellent. And um, so I, I didn't follow along and, and cook with them every week, no, but um, but I was definitely interested in the, in the recipes. And and uh, one of the things the crew would do was submit reports. Uh, most days they had reports coming in that we would have to read and file away and ask questions on, and so it was it was nice keeping tabs that way. And Kim, really, did anything not work that maybe you that in, on paper seemed like a perfect uh, mix of ingredients, but just given the environment, it uh, didn't go over quite as well? Well, I think uh, this is skipping to the side of your question ever so uh-huh. slightly, but yes. but different crews tend to go in different directions. So I was on a four-month crew a few years ago, and uh, we got very into cheese making, for example. I, I made cheese almost uh, every week, and, and the crew really enjoyed that. Um, this crew didn't really get into the cheese making, although, Angela, I believe you did start making yogurt towards the end of the mission. Yeah, that's correct. But, you know, we did it once, and then uh, it wasn't followed up upon. Yeah. Yeah, it, it must be very specific from crew to crew. That's true. Right, right. Now, you know, I am just looking at some of the uh, first, second, and third place winners, and, and I, I, I really think that uh, this is a great endorsement for Spam uh, <laughs> because Spam ranked, you know, in the top three in a number of different categories, like for breakfast and for some of the main dishes. Like, of course, breakfast, there was like a Spam and egg sandwich, and for uh, the main dishes, I think there was a, uh, a Spam fried rice. And, of course, uh, for side dishes, you can't, you know you can't get away from the spam musubi, so that all all came up pretty high in, th- in terms of the ranking. Now, the question that I have is, when you there was one where you did a sushi, and of course you know I love sushi, but the 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 creativity part of this included cooking it with or using quinoa for sushi. Now, normally you would think rice is a normal and and that's a product that 
you folks had as a, as a, um, a, a common thing that you could use, but why quinoa? What, and I don't know who can answer this question, Kim or Angelo. What possessed you to use quinoa in your sushi? Angelo, maybe you want to tackle that one. I actually, I didn't make that decision. Um, <laughs> so I have actually no idea why Haida and Cyan decided to use quinoa. I think it's one of those moments where you, uh, you, just, you absolutely want to experiment with uh, the limited number of thing, things you have, and you just want yeah, you you to try things out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what keeps you going during a mission like this. But the actual, very specific reason, I would have to ask my crew members. <laughs> I, don't know if I, I don't know that. They're just thinking differently, and presumably that's part of the experimentation is substitution of different things for other things. Um, exactly. Right, right. Well, you know, we're talking to Brian Shiro and uh, Kim Binstead and Angelo Vermulin. Uh, they've all been part of the High Seas mission and uh, the, in, in various capacities, the four-month mission on Mars. Of course, uh, doing most of their investigation in food preparation. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to give us a call. The number here is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven. Nine four one three six eight nine. Now we did have a kind of shy caller call in and and really uh, was interested in the crew selection uh, for the the um, the next let's say mission, and also tied to that same question is what happens to the people that applied for the first mission and do they have to apply the second time around? So maybe Kim, you can you can tackle that one. I, I would guess that our shy caller might have applied the first time round. Maybe. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we're going to start recruiting very soon. Now we're waiting for the go ahead from uh, UH's Institutional Review Board. Uh, just about to start recruiting for the next three missions, uh, and the criteria are going to be very similar to what we had for the first mission. We're trying to find people who are as astronaut like as possible, um, and. That includes, of course, educational background, professional background, but also, you know, a certain amount of uh, their psychological characteristics that we're looking for. And uh, one thing that uh, they look for at NASA is something uh, we we call experience in complex operational environments. So you need to have some experience um, working in a complex environment where your decision-making um, has people's lives at stake, mm-hmm. maybe including your own. So an example would be being a pilot uh, of an airplane, but there's many other examples like that. So that's one of the very strong things that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about these uh, future missions? I know, for example, that uh, during this first mission, uh, you got a, a significant additional amount of funding from NASA to continue this work. Um, you did a four-month mission now. Uh, do they get longer in the future? It will, yeah. The plan currently is to have three more missions. Um, the funding is for three more years as well. And there will be another four-month mission followed by an eight-month and then a 12-month, year-long mission. So we're very excited wow. by that. And uh, That's where you want the video cameras, I yeah. think. <laughs> and it's interesting from a crew selection standpoint, too, because who has the time for a 12-month mission? What What's going to be the selection pool for that? Will it be different from the four-month selection pool? Uh, we'll see. And just to, to finish answering the caller's question, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we're going to be asking people who applied for the first one to reapply. Um, I've still got their emails, and I'm going to send them an email um, asking them to reapply. Very similar materials for the first one, but they'll be given a chance to update their application. And Angelo, for you, is there a role for you to play now that you're an alumni? Are you going to stay in touch? Are you going to join the ground mission support team? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, Kim has asked me to uh, to stay in touch with the mission and basically uh, 
to help out with things like uh, mentoring uh, new crew members or helping out with crew selection. And I'd, I'd love to do that, of course. Fantastic. So, Angelo, you're you're um, on the Big Island right now. Uh, are you uh, just vacationing, or or what are you spending your time doing on the Big Island? I'm actually right now at uh, Hank Rogers Ranch, and this oh, is the nice. place where we built. This is the place where we built the robot space farm that I just talked about, and I'm actually uh, looking into it, and I'm doing some uh, some final tests. Great, great. Now uh, I do want to bring uh, Dale on from uh, Kona. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hello. Hi. I was just curious. Um, kind of a funny side question here. I mean, there's been all kinds of science fiction movies and TV shows where they deal with this situation of being in space for long periods of time. Were you able to gain any insight or any ideas from that? From the science fiction? Yeah. Yeah, well, yes, obviously. This is, science fiction is, is so often the the inspiration for, for science itself. And um, I, although I would say that the main difference in our case, uh, you know, a science fiction story needs a certain amount of drama, and we tried to reduce the drama <laughs> as much as possible. Um, so, so yeah, rather than picking crew members who are going to butt heads and, and um, have interesting philosophical d- disagreements, um, although I'm sure there were some, we tried to have a crew that was as compatible as possible. That's a great question, and I, I would agree that you'd want to be careful about uh, your computer systems for perhaps becoming sentient and deciding to take over the mission. Yeah, we avoided that. <laughs> now, uh, a question that I have for you, Angelo, is that uh, you know they were just talking about the uh, Mars One project, and, and i just curious if you thought perhaps that you might uh, participate in a one-way ticket to Mars. I have no interest in uh, one-way tickets to Mars, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm not applying for a Mars one. Uh huh. No. Uh-huh. Now that that seems to be something like right out of a kind of almost science fiction. I mean, uh, to to actually be a volunteer or be self-selecting to have a one-way mission. I mean, it's almost like a, a bit out of this world. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting idea, and I'm very curious to see if they'll pull it off. Um, one of the concerns, of course, is is that one of their funding – part of their funding model is making it into a reality TV show. Oh. So then you have to worry about whether you're picking people because they're going to be interesting. a – yeah. Interesting, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Character. Yeah, that, whereas that's perhaps that psychological might, part that you were talking about. You might, if you want a crew to last a long time, you might want them to be a little bit more boring than right. a reality mm-hmm. show might mm-hmm. need. A now, long time, we're talking about the rest of their life, right? That's right, right. absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And don't forget, there's also Inspiration Mars. So there's a second Mars mission getting off the ground right now with a launch of two, in 2017 that will launch two people, most likely a married couple. So you talked about... Um, boring. Uh, uh, I don't know if it is or not, but we'll see. But there, there may be a, a, a couple going to Mars in a few years, and they're going to do a flyby and come back. Oh, interesting. interesting. Now, I have a question. I'm, I'm dying to ask this question. And this is, did you guys have to, uh, let's say, simulate using the bathroom like you were on Mars? Or was this just a, you know, like incorporating an outhouse in uh, the, <laughs> the dome on Mauna Loa? I mean, can you, can, can you share that with me? Is that for Angelo? I well, think. Angelo, you were there, so can you can you uh, shed some light on my curiosity? Were there any vacuums? So involved? you so you want me to explain in detail how <laughs> well, we went to the bathroom? You can choose a, to be as a closure as... of this of this. Uh, no, we. Oh, I have to disappoint you. We used regular bathrooms, regular toilets, so it's... we didn't have any space uh, equipment for that. 
Okay. Thank you. It's good to see where uh, Bert's mind is at. Now, Kim, this <laughs> verse mission was very yeah, much right? focused on the on the food study. What are some of the other like uh, specific topics that are going to be really exciting to address in the future? in future research? Well, our funding going forward, our funding for the first one was indeed for the food study, right. but our funding going forward is to look at factors affecting crew selection and crew cohesion. So we're really going to be getting into the, the heads of our crew mm-hmm, going mm-hmm. forward. Uh, looking at both what factors make them suitable to be a good crew member, uh, psychological, professional, and so on, but also how can we support them? How can we keep them sane and healthy and happy and functioning well over these very long duration missions? Now, if you're going to be focusing on the psychology, does that change a bit? I mean, we did you did briefly talk about some of the selection processes. Um, and, of course, you don't want the drama queens, for example, on board. But I would think that uh, if you repeat it, if you have an opportunity to repeat a mission or a simulator mission more than once, you might actually mix up a little more than you did for perhaps the first mission in terms of the diversity of personalities. Is that true or no? Actually, we had quite a diverse crew this first time mm-hmm. around. Um, I, I would say I would call them a balanced crew. And we're going to continue to try and build these balanced crews. Um, uh, at this point, we know an awful lot about how crews can break down. Hmm. Um, there's ample examples of crews that don't work well and end up in these bad conflicts. What we have less of, less knowledge about is if you make the best crew you possibly can, how do you keep them healthy mm-hmm. and happy? So we're going to continue to do our best to c- select good crews. We're not going to um, deliberately uh, hamper them mm-hmm. right from the beginning. Now, one of the things that uh, I, I foresee happening is, is papers being published as a result of the research that you're doing. So is there a way that we as the, the public can be uh, kind of kept in touch with the papers that get delivered? Or, or are there going to be sort of you know the uh, executive summaries for the common person to understand what it is that you've learned as a result of these? Uh, these uh, missions. Oh, we'll do. We'll do both. Yeah, we're definitely publishing a whole bunch of academic papers coming out of this, mm-hmm. but we'll make sure that uh, uh, summaries of those are on the website. And then, which website is this? It's highseas.org. So h i s e a s dot o r g. Great. We'll definitely be watching, and we will also be curious about how your second crew selection goes. Yeah, we'll be uh, probably inviting you both to come on, and so. Uh, um, Kim Binstead is a co-investigator at High Seas. Brian Shiro provided mission support. And Angelo Vermeulen is the crew commander of the Mars Desert Research Station. We want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you very much, Travis. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when we'll learn how to run a successful Kickstarter campaign. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called The Minks and a song called Everything's Fine. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Little